Exodus chapter 27. Amen. Praise the Lord. I have this morning uh, someone made up for us a little thing that illustrates the tabernacle and the furniture of the tabernacle. And so there are a hundred of these. Uh, so I don't, you all can't have one, but one per unit, one per family. And uh, so we'll uh, get these out to you in the course of the thing. Maybe if Brother Elsus, you could just give one to each section and they can just uh, a pile to each section. They can ha- pass them back. Exodus chapter 27. We're talking this morning about the tabernacle. We've been studying for a number of of weeks if you're visiting with us this morning on the tabernacle and have found that this is not just a thing that uh, lost all significance by the uh, by the close of the Old Testament or with the coming of Jesus but God has placed eternal principles in the tabernacle in terms of our meeting with him and having relationship with him praise the lord and uh i just would like to read something i found in a book i thought was kind of interesting we were talking about the doctrine of eternal security and um i have this book a long obedience in the same direction is written by uh, eugene peterson who is a pastor of a presbyterian church and you that's about as Calvinistic as you can be, Presbyterian. You saw Eric Little run by old John Calvin last night, didn't you? And wave his hat as he went into his Scottish Presbyterian church. And uh, I thought this was interesting. The guy believes uh, in eternal security. But listen to what he says. Uh, he's talking about the general truth under which the Christian lives in this regard is once saved always saved this is he believes that normally christians believe once saved always saved once you're a christian there's no getting out of it uh once you've signed you cannot be a free agent again no matter what the commissioner or the supreme supreme court rules now he goes on to say however true that is generally and i think it is there are exceptions (laughs) it would seem that if god will not force us to faith in the first place He will not keep us against our will finally. Falling away is possible. We know of Judas. We know of Hymenaeus and Alexander who made shipwreck of their faith. These are the ones described uh, here. The way of discipleship gets difficult. They see an opening through the trees, promises a softer, easier path, distracted and diverted. They leave and never return. I just thought that was kind of interesting. This is a Calvinist, a Presbyterian, and yet I guess it's from pastoring and having to deal with real life people and, and coming out of the, the, uh, the monastery or the uh, seminary that you deal with reality and where people really live. And what he's found out is that in his theology, which says once saved, always saved, uh, there are exceptions to that, that people can backslide, people can lose their salvation and I just thought I'd share that. I thought that that was an interesting uh, insight as a man grapples with how his 
theology doesn't quite line up with the reality of experience uh, or the Word of God. Amen. Praise God. So we're going to talk this morning about uh, the brazen altar of uh, the tabernacle. Let's look at chapter 27, uh, beginning at verse 1. If somebody could read that nice and loud, Brother Brunier, if you could read that. Okay, so we're talking about the brazen altar. What is the relationship of the brazen altar to uh, the rest of the tabernacle or to what we've looked at so far? Where do we, where do we contact the brazen altar? Brother Steve? Okay, good. We talked about the, uh, there's the outer court. And then there is the gate, and as soon as you enter the gate, there is the, the brazen altar is the very first thing that you contact, the very first thing that you, with which you must deal uh, upon entering into the tabernacle. You have a picture of that uh, on the front of that, and I don't know if that's exactly the scale about the size. If you look on the back, you'll see the high priest uh, standing before or the priest standing before the altar and you'll see the size of it in relationship to uh, the uh, human form it's a large structure made of brass amen and as we talked about last week uh, what was the meaning or what is the uh, picture the intent that God is communicating in the fact that this is made out of brass. The fact that it's made out of brass. Brother Ken? Okay. Uh, what's what's the, the thought uh, of the brass? Another thought that's there. It's a picture of judgment. Brass is a picture of judgment. And we looked at a number of scriptures about that. And brass is a picture of judgment. Amen. Okay, let's look at uh, some of the other components of this altar. Again, it looks uh, just a hollow box. If you're looking right down into it, there's a grating that is there. As you can see in your picture, there are horns that are coming off the sides of as well as rings that are underneath for the carrying of that. And uh, so let's look at uh, the reference to fire. There's obviously going to be fire in here, and uh, this is going to burn, and uh, we'll look at that. Genesis 19.24, someone, Todd Purden, over here, uh, Numbers 11, 1 and 2, Bob Corsi, uh, Deuteronomy 7, 5, uh, Sam Atkinson, uh, Matthew 3, 12, John Palmer, Randy Foster, Jude 7, and uh, Dennis, uh, Revelation 20, 15. And so this is made of brass, and this picture is one of judgment, as we looked at last week. And there's also the picture or the presence 
of fire in this uh, in this altar, and this has a particular meaning itself. Genesis 19:24. Okay, God rained down fire and brimstone upon Sodom and Gomorrah. Why did God do that? Judgment. Sinful cities that God judged, and he did that by fire. Uh, Numbers 11, 1 and 2. Okay, the people complained and... You know, God doesn't mind a little complaining, He, but he just answered by fire and he charred anyone that complained about the way he was doing business. Amen. And uh, they uh, no longer complained. Amen. Uh, Deuteronomy 7, 5. 7, 5. Okay, and so what's happening here is these are the idolatrous implements of the heathen nations. And God says, no, don't just put them as souvenirs on your mantelpiece. Don't sell them at a yard sale or, or take them down to swap meet. He said, burn them with fire. Amen. Uh, judgment. Matthew 3.12. Okay, Jude 7, eternal fire on these. Revelation 20, 15. Whosoever was not found, uh, whose name was not found written in the Lamb's book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So our picture again the fire of judgment uh, that is here. This is a place, uh, a place of brass, which is a place of judgment, a place of fire, which is a place uh, of judgment. And it is a place also of death. It's a place where the animals were brought and killed. They died, and death is also a picture of judgment and there are multitudes of references to this, but we just want to look up to Exodus 19.12. Exodus 19.12, Mike Solano, and then Woody, uh, Revelation 2.23. Death is also a picture of judgment. If they would approach the mountain of God and touch it, that violation would bring swift death in judgment of that sin. Revelation 2.23. Revelation 2.23. Revelation 2.23. I just looked that one up this morning. Well, anyways, let me just look that. Revelation 
and I will kill her children with death. And all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts. Okay, I'm, I'm sorry, I missed the first part. Okay, and so here we have the entrance through the gate. And uh, this is wonderful here. Jesus uh, or the gate offers us a wonderful access. We come through. Oh, isn't this glorious? But the moment, uh, the first thing that we encounter is the brazen altar. We encounter the place of judgment uh, the place uh, that where we must stop here, we must do business here. There is no relationship with God. There is no possibility of relationship with God without judgment. So the uh, the priests take these panicking, struggling animals, slit their throats. Uh, they pour the blood out. They are taken and uh, placed upon the altar where they are burned uh, and God's wrath uh, and judgment uh, is demonstrated against sin. As these uh, uh, animals uh, take on themselves the, uh, the sin of the, uh, of the sinning party, that individual poises his hands, confesses his sin. That sin is symbolically placed upon that animal. And then that man watches how God feels about sin. Not just, oh, well, n no problem. Uh, you're weak. Uh, you know, you've just, you're, you've got problems and you made a mistake. He had to watch the horror of seeing this poor innocent animal with his uh, throat slit, its uh, blood pouring out, the last shakings and shudderings as the life went out, and then watched it burn and burn and burn and burn and burn. And the picture that he's supposed to get is that's supposed to be you, buddy. That's you. That's what you deserve. He just took that in your place. There's no relationship with God unless we encounter this judgment where the wrath of God is brought against sin, where God's judgment is brought against sin. This is done through a substitute, but what is inferred, what is understood is that the one that is worthy of that is the sinning Israelite. That the sinning Israelite, the unrepentant sinner, would experience that exact same thing. And he's saying, yes, I deserve that, but this sacrifice is going in my place gives them a clear picture of God's feeling about sin. Sin, not just some uh, flaw in the character, not some minor mistake, not something that's explained away by our background or, or how our parents uh, treated us or, or the fact of uh, uh, we didn't have the best uh, advantages in life. God uh, isn't saying all of that. God's saying, uh, sin... I'll tell you what sin brings. It brings death and it brings fire. It brings my wrath and my judgment. Okay, let's look at the reality of judgment. See, the thing is, before we can appreciate the altar for vicarious sacrifice, we need to appreciate its other meaning. That is the judgment, a sentence carried out against sin. 
The altar was unavoidable. It had to be faced. There's a contemporary gospel singer. Maybe you know him. I, I'm, I don't know who this is. But I found this quote. And he sings. Uh, he says, Some people tell about an angry God. Hey, that ain't the God that I serve. He's singing in his superficial, syrupy uh, gospel songs uh, that God isn't an angry God. God doesn't get angry. No, no, no. He's just love. And he loves sin. He just, uh, he loves people so much that he can't get mad about sin. He might get irritated, but then he gets a hold of himself and, and he loves people. Well, let's look at that. Psalm 711. Psalm 711. Brother Noel, Brother Rod Olmsted, John 3, 36. Remember, had an evangelist one time, and during his altar call, he would uh, make the invitation and it'd say, God's not mad at you. God loves you. And I thought that was kind of nice. I didn't know if that was, uh, that was totally true, but it sounded good. And so I started saying that too sometimes. I mean, I'm pulling the altar call. That is until I did this study. God is mad. God really is mad. If you're not saved this morning, it's not just that God is, uh, loves you uh, and is just wanting to draw you into relationship. All of that is true. But also there exists in his heart and in his mind wrath and anger about your sin. And so the picture that you need to get this morning is not just that there's a God who loves you that is drawing and wooing you to himself so that you can have relationship. That is true. But understand, too, that his eyes are as a flame of fire and he looks upon your sin and he is moved to wrath and indignation about your sin. Psalm 711. God is angry with the wicked every day. This Hebrew word means literally to foam at the mouth with intense rage. Now, God doesn't have a mouth, obviously. He does not physical. But the picture is of intense rage. That this is not a God that's just uh, explaining away sin or just whitewashing sin. When God does see sin, He's moved to intense rage. John 3.36. Okay. If you're not saved, then the wrath of God abideth on you. That word means a violent, justifiable anger and wrath with intent to punish. So the sin in your life is not something that, uh, that God is going to pass over, that God is just going to forget about. God is angry, and in His wrath, He intends, He fully intends to punish. He will punish sin. Amen. Let's, I'd like to take a sermon out of the past. A man named Jonathan Edwards, who uh, was used of God in 
revival back uh, in the 18th century in New England. And I'd just like to read this for you, if you can follow along with me. The title of the sermon, one of his most famous, is Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Listen to this. The wrath of God is like great waters that are damned for the present. They increase more and more and rise higher and higher till an outlet is given. The longer the stream is stopped, the more rapid and mighty its course when once it is let loose. Tis true that judgment against your evil work has not been executed hitherto. The floods of God's vengeance have been withheld. But your guilt in the meantime is constantly increasing, and you are every day treasuring up more wrath. The waters are continually rising and waxing more and more mighty, and there is nothing but the mere pleasure of God that holds the waters back, that are unwilling to be stopped and press hard to go forward. If God should only withdraw His hand from the floodgate, it would immediately fly open. The fiery floods of the fierceness of the wrath of God would rush forth with inconceivable fury and would come upon you with omnipotent power. And if your strength were 10,000 times greater than it is, yea, 10,000 times greater than the strength of the stoutest, sturdiest devil in hell, it would be nothing to withstand or endure it. The bow of God's wrath is bent, the arrow made ready on the string, and justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow. And there is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. Thus are all that never passed under the great change of heart by the mighty power of the Spirit of God upon our souls, all that were never born again and made new creatures and raised from being dead in sin to a new state and before altogether unexperienced in light and life, However, you may have reformed your life in many things and may have had religious affections and may keep up a form of religion in your family, uh, families and closets in the house of God and may be strict in it. You are thus in the hands of an angry God. Tis nothing but His mere pleasure that keeps you from being this moment swallowed up in everlasting destruction. And it goes on and on and on uh, and we won't take the rest of the time. God is angry about sin. There is, uh, we preach the love of God and the desire of God to save the lost. He's come to call uh, sinners to repentance. He's given His life for that. But see, you and I can't even appreciate the cross unless we understand how God feels about sin. That in the cross, it's not just the, the thing of, oh, isn't that wonderful, the love of God, that He would come and die for us. But when we look at the cross and see Jesus Christ beaten and bloodied, His face marred more than any man, His horrible treatment and His suffering and death, then we have to understand that that's how God feels about the sin in my life. And so, you're not simply, if you're refusing salvation, you're not simply just saying, well, God, I know that you love me and I'm going to come home one of these days and we'll get it together. But you're also dealing with the fact that every day the flood of God's wrath is building greater and greater and greater against your sin. This is the teaching of the Word of God. Let's look at some other scriptures. Revelation 20. 11 through 15. 
someone, uh, Mike Elsis, uh, Brother Bernier, uh, Revelation 1, 12 through 17. The wrath of God. Let me read just one more part of this. He says, Let everyone that is yet out of Christ and hanging over the pit of hell, whether they be old men and women or middle-aged or young people or little children, now hearken to the loud call of God's providence. This acceptable year of the Lord is that day of such great favor as will doubtless be a day of remarkable vengeance to others. Now undoubtedly, as it is in the days of John the Baptist, the axe is in an extraordinary manner laid at the root of the tree that every tree that bringeth forth not good fruit may be hewn down and cast into the fire. Revelation 20, 11 through 15. <clears throat> Okay, this is not a trial. This is the executing of judgment. See, don't get the picture that on the other side of death that uh, everybody's going to come and get to plead their case before God. And God's going to listen. If it sounds good, you talk good, then he'll let you in. And if not, then he'll bring judgment upon you. The great white throne isn't a trial. Once you've uh, died, once you've passed from this life, it's all over. And when you face judgment, uh, when you face God, it is not going. there's going to be no time for argument. There's going to be no time to plead your case at that moment. God, if you're not born again, is going to say, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. No trial, no second appeal, no last-minute pardon from uh, the governor's office, nothing of the sort... From the moment that you die, your eternity is sealed and you face God for judgment. It is appointed unto man once to die. And after this, the judgment, the Bible says. Revelation 1, 12 through 17. Okay. If you picture somehow that on the other side of heaven, you're going to see the, the pale... Galilean is going to greet you, whether it's saved or unsaved, backslidden, whatever, sinful, carnal believer, and it's just going to be this pale Galilean that you always saw, just holding the little children and, and holding the little lamb over his shoulder. I've got news for you. This is what John saw. Eyes flaming forth with judgment. Feet made of brass, made of judgment. And John was saved. I mean, he was okay. He was an apostle. He was the beloved disciple. And when John saw him, he fell at his feet as if dead. That's the intensity. Now, the glorious thing is that because John was saved, that Jesus could reach down. See, we're... We do uh, our gospel tremendous disservice if we leave this out. Thank God for the love of God. We're not talking about a schizophrenic God. 
that he's, you know, he's love, but sometimes he gets ticked off. These are, God is a whole, a unity, and these two things exist side by side in his nature. A love of people, but a wrath against sin. And I'm not saying that every time we testify, every time we preach, it's all just judgment, wrath, judgment, judgment. I, when I got saved, I got saved because I wanted help. Didn't even believe in hell. However, let's understand that this gospel that we preach is all the more glorious because of the horrible judgment that awaits those who do not know Jesus Christ. Let's talk about hell this morning. This is the forgotten doctrine. This is the thing that nobody mentions anymore. My first Sunday school in this building, first time I came to this building, there was a Sunday school on hell. Now you might say, well, that's, well, that would be rough. You know, your first Sunday morning coming as a Sunday school on hell. Well, I'd been in church for five years of my life and never heard a sermon Never heard a Sunday school, never heard a teaching on the subject of hell. Born again people, evangelicals, the forgotten doctrine. We don't like that. There are many theories. What are some theories besides just that people will go to hell? What are some of the alternatives? Kathy? Okay, annihilation. Yes, you just cease to exist, Louis. A soul sleep, all right? Ken? Purgatory. Hell for beginners. Amen. <laughs> That's what you had. Amen. Uh, Victor? Okay, but hell is just a place where you go and you burn up like that and then you disintegrate. Uh, a little bit of oomph behind the annihilation theory, but still not quite. Dwayne? Okay, this is hell right here. I'm living in hell right on earth. Okay. Yeah, just uh, it's just a picture of uh, of destruction. Uh, a garbage dump, uh, that that's where you'd go, you'd, uh, uh, but uh, nothing would happen to you. Uh, you'd just annihilate, or uh, it's just an image to, to warn people from living in sin. Dave? Hell is a state of mind? Okay. Yes, that's where I'll be with all my friends. We'll party. We'll have a great time. Okay, Everett's universal salvation. Jesus died for sinners, and so uh, everybody gets saved in the end. All right. Uh-huh, and then you get to go. Okay, get to go to heaven. Okay, reincarnation. You just come back and go through lives until you cleanse out all your junk, and then finally you're just... Uh, hit whatever you want and, and you become part of the nothing. <clears throat> Randy?
okay? Levels of heaven for carnal, for unsaved, and if you're really good, then you go to the top one. Okay, good. All right, let's see what hell uh, is all about. One thing is that it's uh, questioned if hell is actually a place of literal fire or if this is just uh, uh, symbolic language about just destruction or just be or just annihilation let's uh, look at some scriptures here Matthew 13 Dwayne okay listen carefully Matthew 13 30 40 I'm sorry 30 41 and 42 three verses 30 41 and 42 and then Matthew 13, Mark Hamilton, uh, verses 47 through 50. So we're talking about a place of fire. Literal fire. Uh, go ahead. You read those three verses for us. Matthew 13, 30. Okay, before you read the other two, this is a parable of the wheat and the tares. Okay, let them grow up, cut them down, divide them. One goes into the barn, one goes into the, uh, into the fire. Oh, well, that's just a parable. You know, the wheat are the Christians, the tares are the unsaved, and the fire is just symbolic only we look at Jesus' interpretation in 41 and 42. Okay, so the wheat changes picture, the tares change picture, only the fire stays the same. Fire isn't taken out of the parable. The fire is still there where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Not annihilation. Not, to, well, they'll just get consumed and they'll just gnash a little, uh, for a second and then they'll be gone. No weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay, uh, 47 through 50. Okay, here's the picture again. We use uh, the fish this time. But again, when Jesus brings the parable down to reality, the fire remains. The fire is there. That fire, is, we're talking about a literal fire. That there is in hell, there is in the lake of fire, a literal fire that actually does burn, that resurrection bodies, that, uh, that, we're, that every individual will have. If you're, you'll be raised from the dead with a new body, whether you're a sinner or you're saved, and that body that you have as a sinner will be able to feel the heat and the intensity of the flames of hell, the flames of fire. Somebody, can somebody just quickly tell us how we know that you're going to be able to feel that? Okay, all right, good. How about a... Okay, the rich man and Lazarus. Here's a man that is in hell. It's not as parable, a certain... 
man. A certain man. And he is down, he's saying, let Lazarus just dip his finger in some water and touch my tongue because I am tormented in these flames. Horrible uh, misery. He's conscious. He's not... uh, uh, he has not been annihilated. He's not been given a shot of, of Novocaine to, uh, to, for eternity. He's conscious. He remembers and he feels the flames of fire. Okay, secondly, the thing that is, is said is that, that death is just this. It is just annihilation. The death is simply annihilation, and when it says the second death, uh, then uh, it's just, you know, you go to hell maybe, and then at the, after the judgment, uh, then you're just annihilated, you cease to exist. Now, I want to look at some scriptures uh, on this. Uh, someone find Ephesians 2.1, Ephesians 2.1 quickly, uh, Rod, and then uh, Revelation 17, 8 and 11. Uh, Todd, Revelation 17, 8 and 11. Revelation 19, 20. Uh, Dennis, and then Brother Bernier, uh, Revelation 20, 10. Okay, that death is uh, just annihilation. You just uh, uh, experience that. Uh, you're, you just go to the grave, and then uh, you're taken care of. You die once uh, in your physical death, uh, and then when you pass from that, your second death is just... Uh, an annihilation, but that's a violation of what the Bible to, uh, understands to be death. Someone read Ephesians two one. Who's got that? Okay, you were dead. Now, what does that mean? That that uh, they were all they were corpses. Just uh, cadavers uh, uh, walking around? No, it's talking about uh, the, the death, meaning a living death or a life that has been violated or life that is not what it was created to be. Before we're saved, we're, we're dead. And so death does not mean in the Bible annihilation. It does not mean extinction. It means life that is destroyed and yet still remains living. Let's read these scriptures and then we're going to have to dismiss uh, just to give us a picture here. Revelation 17, 8 and 11. Okay. This is the other thought. The destruction or perdition is exactly this again. Annihilation. Uh, that The beast goes and experiences perdition and some would say annihilation. Well, let's see if that's what happens. Revelation 19.20. Okay, this is the lake of fire. That's what this means. That it burning with fire and brimstone. This is what the perdition was. But are they just ex- extincted? Whatever the word is. Uh, Revelation 20.10. Tormented forever and ever. So perdition is not annihilation. Perdition is torment forever and ever. 
Okay, we must dismiss. I'm sorry we didn't have a chance for questions. We've got some more next week. Uh, the Lord bless you.